Please do take your seats. It's time for us to read God's Word now. Uh, I'm going to read to us from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, just a few verses. You can find that on page 969 if you've got one of the church Bibles near you, and it will be up on the screen uh, if you don't have one to hand. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 to 20, and then once I've finished reading that, Stephen Jones is going to come and preach for us. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Nathan. Good evening, everyone. Let's pray before we have a look at God's Word together. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you this evening that your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. And so, Father, we pray that as we look at your Word together, that your Holy Spirit will be at work taking the truths of the Word and applying them to our hearts, our emotions, our lives, our minds. Father, we pray again that we will be transformed this evening by the renewing of our minds. So, Father, help us to think aright and help us to live aright as a consequence. Father, we pray these things, that Christ might be glorified, and that we might be built up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's little doubt that the Lord's teaching was, in many ways, radically new and radically different. The Lord's hearers certainly received his teaching in this way. At the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 28 to 29, we read this. The crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So the people of Jesus' day were used to hearing the teaching of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious experts of the time. But the teaching of these men, well, it wasn't fresh and it wasn't direct. Their teaching didn't attempt to explain, it didn't attempt to apply the Old Testament scriptures directly to the people. Some of us already know that the teaching of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees was focused mainly on passing on traditional interpretations of the law of God rather than the law of God itself. So they concentrated on passing on the interpretation of rabbis concerning the word of God rather than the teaching rather than teaching the Old Testament scriptures themselves. And so in Jesus's day it's debatable whether many people actually knew or understood the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Many people would have been familiar with these various rabbinic interpretations of the scriptures. 
many of which were unfaithful interpretations or legalistic additions to the Scripture, but many people simply didn't have a grasp of the Old Testament Scriptures themselves. And just a little aside, apparently listening to a, a, a Jewish missionary at Keswick last year, and he was saying that even today many religious Jews don't know much about the Old Testament, the Old Testament that they too believe in, at least, at least hypothetically, because many Jews just have this, uh, these spectacles of rabbinic traditions through which they're supposed to understand the Old Testament scriptures, but in reality, they don't have much of a grasp of the scriptures. But the teaching of Jesus contrasted with that of the teachers of the law. Because as we'll see, did see, and we'll see over coming weeks, the Lord quoted Old Testament scripture. He didn't quote the rabbis. And as the Lord taught, he interpreted scripture, as we'll see, on his own authority. The Lord Jesus didn't appeal to certain teachers of the law, to certain traditions, to give credibility to his teaching. As we've just read together, as we've just heard together, the Lord taught as if he had authority in and of himself to interpret the scriptures. And of course, that was true. The Lord Jesus did have that authority. He had that authority as the Son of God, as God's ultimate apostle and teacher. So he was this teacher, fresh on the scene, bringing a fresh approach to teaching. But Jesus' teaching must have raised questions amongst the people, amongst the people who were listening to him. What then was Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament scriptures? What was Jesus' relationship to the law of Moses or to the moral law that was revealed in the Old Testament? Had this fresh teacher, this radical, this seemingly radical teacher come to do away with the Old Testament scriptures? Had the Lord Jesus Christ come to replace the Old Testament scriptures with his own new moral teaching? Did Jesus intend to correct the mistakes of the past with new up-to-date teaching? Well, sadly, many people today raise the same concerns. Sadly, there are people out there who want to set Jesus' teaching against the teaching of Moses. They want to set the New Testament against the Old Testament. They want to set New Testament Christianity against Old Testament Judaism. But as we'll see, I hope we'll see tonight and over, in, over coming weeks, this approach is totally unnecessary. It's totally wrong. Because as we'll see in these verses, we'll see that Jesus came to fulfill Old Testament scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ came, and in his coming, he came to explain and he came to apply Old Testament scripture but we'll also see he did not come to do away with the Old Testament. He didn't come to contradict the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. So four points for the remainder of our time. Four headings. Swiftly through, don't worry. Four words to help us through these four verses. And the first one is fulfillment. Number one, fulfillment. Verse 17 do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
So here Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, and that's the shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. That's, that's a way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus says here, categorically, he's not come to do away with, to ignore, to abolish the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures. We're not to believe that. Rather, Jesus tells us that he had come to fulfill them. Well, we know that the Old Testament is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. If we fail to see that, we've missed the point of the Old Testament. Jesus said that the Old Testament scriptures testify about me. That's about him. John 5, verse 39. So Jesus came to the earth to fulfill the Old Testament. He came to fulfill the events that the Old Testament predicted. The predictions about the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of the Messiah. Jesus came to fulfill all those Old Testament types and shadows and ceremonies that the Lord God had established in Israel. He came to fulfill all of those things that pointed forward to the person and the work of the Messiah. Jesus came to fulfill the life that Israel should have lived before God under the law of Moses. He, should, he came rather to fulfill the life that Israel should have lived and had failed to do so. And the Lord Jesus came to fulfill the life that each of his people should have lived before God and have failed to do so. The Lord Jesus Christ came to live out every aspect of the law perfectly on behalf of his people so that by faith we would be credited, we'd be accounted, we'd be counted with his perfect righteousness before God. The 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, wrote, He came to fulfil the ceremonial law by becoming the great sacrifice for sin to which all the Mosaic offerings had ever pointed. He came to fulfil the moral law by yielding to it a perfect obedience which we could never have yielded and by paying the penalty for our breach of it with his atoning blood which we could never have paid. And so this evening, we, as we gather, we gather in part to praise the Lord Jesus Christ that he willingly left heaven in accordance with the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus willingly left the glories of heaven to fulfil the Old Testament prophecies and types and shadows. The Lord Jesus Christ, and this is such a, a point for praise, that the Lord Jesus Christ willingly came to live a life of perfect righteousness on our behalf so that by faith we might be made right with God. To live that life that we wouldn't and that we couldn't live in our sin. So that's our first point then, fulfilment. Secondly, affirmation. Secondly, affirmation. Because we see here that Jesus affirms the ongoing truthfulness, the ongoing relevance of the Old Testament scriptures, even after his coming. He says in verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
More literally, what's said there is, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Well, a jot was what is known in Hebrew writing or Hebrew letters as the, the, the yod, the smallest Hebrew letter. And a tittle was just a small part on some Hebrew letter formations. And Jesus was making the point. These were very tiny parts of Hebrew writing. And not a single jot or tittle of the Old Testament would be done away with with his arrival. In effect, Jesus is saying that all of the Old Testament scripture has everlasting significance. Even those parts of the Old Testament which would seem to be insignificant, even they have ongoing authority and validity and usefulness. None of it is to be done away with or ignored. Even now Jesus himself is on the scene. We'll think a bit more about that in a moment. So as we sit here tonight, we are a Baptist church, not by denomination, but we are theologically a Baptist church. I guess that many of us, if not all of us, would be happy to describe ourselves as Baptists. And that's not unimportant, but most importantly is the fact that we sit here tonight as evangelical Christians. In other words, as Bible-believing Christians. And as evangelicals, we hold to the infallibility, the inerrancy, the authority, the relevance of all the Scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments. We affirm the authority, the reliability of both the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible. And so you might sit there thinking, well, what difference does that make? Well, it means that as a church, as God's people here, we we should and we do honour and we believe and trust and we study and read and we preach the Old Testament scriptures. We believe that the Old Testament scriptures are true, even the bits that the the world out there might scorn or refuse to believe or or make fun of or refuse to believe is historically true or, or accurate. We hold to these things. We believe what the Bible says about creation, about history, about science, for example. The Lord Jesus Christ himself affirmed that the Old Testament scriptures are from God himself, our God who cannot lie. So the Lord Jesus Christ affirms the importance, the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. So that's number two, affirmation. Number three then, is encouragement. Encouragement. Jesus says in verse 19 that we should, as a result of this, we should seek to continue to obey the commands found in the Old Testament. Verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We need a quick footnote here before we progress. Because as New Testament Christians, we believe that we have no obligation to to practice or to obey certain aspects of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. Some aspects of the law of Moses we might call judicial 
to do with the law. Others we might call ceremonial, and we're talking about things like food laws and the sacrificial system, the structures of government and the judicial system, and so on. As New Testament Christians, we believe that some parts of the law of Moses were given only to Old Testament Israel for a certain time and a certain place in their history. We believe that the New Testament church is under no obligation to practice or to obey these laws. These laws have been set aside for us today. We can, though, glean useful principles from such laws, but we have no obligation to practice or to obey some of these Old Testament laws. And we believe that we have biblical reasons for this. And um, if I went on to explain, we wouldn't be here probably until we'd leave tomorrow morning, even if I had a go at it. But the Bible says that as New Testament Christians, we're under no obligation to obey or to practice certain parts of the Mosaic law. But, but, I believe that Jesus is saying here that we are under obligation to obey the moral laws found in the Mosaic law, as well as in the moral commands found in the Old Testament more widely. And he says here that as members of the kingdom of heaven, we're to seek to teach and to obey all of the moral instructions found in the Bible, both in the New and the Old Testaments. Jesus says here that greatness in the kingdom is to seek to teach and to practice the moral commands that the Bible gives us. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at, we're going to be exposed to Jesus' teaching on issues of Christian ethics and morality. Things like murder and adultery and divorce and, and oath-making. But in the most important sense, I don't think we're going to see anything new in the substance of what Jesus teaches. In one sense, the Lord Jesus will simply repeat commands found in the Old Testament to his listeners then and to us in his word today. The newness, the freshness of Jesus' teaching will be the way in which he seeks to apply these principles to those who hear. The newness, the freshness of Jesus' teaching will be the way in which he seeks to apply these principles to his hearers. And we'll see in particular that the Lord Jesus is going to apply these principles not simply, not only to our outward behavior, but to inward attitudes. The Lord Jesus is going to apply these principles not simply to our outward behavior, but to inward attitudes. Nathan titled uh, this sermon, Raising the Bar. Uh, and I think that's what is meant by that. Not that Jesus came with new law, new moral law, but he raised the bar in the sense that he took away these misunderstandings that the law was to be applied to outward behavior only or mainly, but rather the law was to be obeyed inwardly from the heart. And that raises all kinds of issues that we'll come to in a moment. John MacArthur writes, we are not to think that Jesus' teaching in the verses that follow was meant to alter or abrogate or replace the moral content of the Old Testament law. He was neither giving a new law nor modifying the old, but rather explaining the true significance of the moral content of Moses' law and the rest of the Old Testament. 
So Jesus' teaching, in other words, came, he came to clarify, to explain, and to apply Old Testament moral law to the people. He came to challenge maybe the accepted understanding and application of the Old Testament moral law, but he didn't come to amend it or to rewrite it or, or to impose new moral laws. He reiterated, he reapplied Old Testament moral commands and instructions. Next week, I think we'll see if Colin agrees with what I've just said. Well, sometimes we might hear often well-meaning Christians say something like this. Christianity is not about rules, it's about relationship. And we know what they're trying to say, don't we? We know what they're getting at there. Because at the heart of biblical Christianity, well, it's all about a living relationship with our Father God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit. And we say amen to that. We know that we're saved through faith in Christ's obedience, his work on the cross, not our own, but on Christ. All those things are true. And yet when I hear people say, well, it's about relationship, not rules, another part of me always wants to say, are you joking? Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of commands for us as God's people to obey. It's chock full. The Bible is chock full of commands that we are to seek to obey. And the commands which, if we seek to obey them in God's strength, they'll bring glory and pleasure to him and they will bring blessing to ourselves and to others. So the Lord Jesus Christ says we are to seek to obey and to teach God's moral commandments. That's what it takes to be great in the kingdom of God. We're to be serious about Jesus' ethical and moral teaching. In the Great Commission, Jesus says that we are to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Christianity, it's all about, in one sense, relationship with our Father in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. But the the Christian faith is also about obedience to the commands of our Lord and our King. So that's number three, encouragement. And then finally, number four, challenge. Because the Lord Jesus Christ finishes these verses with this potentially terrifying statement. He says in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious experts of the day, they were known for their religious fervor, their zeal, their practice, their holiness, their expertise. And now the Lord Jesus Christ was saying to the ordinary hearer, to the likes of you and me, and says to us this evening, that if we are to have a part in God's kingdom then they and we have to live more righteously than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Which the people must have initially thought to that statement, no chance, Lord. You must be joking, Lord, that we are to live more righteously than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They must have said, how can I hope to live more righteously than these religious experts, than these holy men? 
How can I hope, therefore, to have a part in God's eternal kingdom? In first century Jewish society, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were seen as surely the most righteous people on the planet. Apparently, one Jewish saying at the time went something like this. If only two men were allowed to enter heaven, then one will certainly be a teacher of the law and the other a Pharisee. So, my righteousness, they might have said to the Lord Jesus, my righteousness must surpass theirs to enter God's kingdom. But I don't think the Lord Jesus Christ was joking. He meant what he said. See, the Lord Jesus Christ demands holiness from his people. The Lord Jesus Christ demands a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. The Lord Jesus Christ demands a life of righteous obedience from his people. We read in Hebrews 12 verse 14, and it's one of those verses that can sometimes unsettle people. It says there, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so maybe you're sitting there, as I sat there preparing this week, asking the question, how can I, how can we, how can Jesus' listeners hope to obtain to a righteousness greater than the Pharisees? What hope did the ordinary Jew have? What hope do we have? What hope do we have of being accepted into God's kingdom if the standard is so high? Well, let me say to you this evening, there is great hope. But that hope is not in ourselves. It is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And we've mentioned that a few times over the last few months. That when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our God begins a work in us. He forgives our sins he declares us to be perfect in his sight. But he also gives us his Holy Spirit to work in us, to change us, to become more like Christ. And the glory, or part of the glory at least of this, is that the work of the Spirit is not an outward one. You know, the Spirit is not interested in making us look more religious, in making us look more righteous or more respectable, or more moral on the outside. The Spirit is not interested in making us like the Pharisees. Do you remember how the Lord Jesus Christ called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs? Outwardly, these religious men seemed clean and respectable and religious. But inside, these men were full of death. Dead men's bones, Jesus said. So when we become Christians, the Spirit begins to do a work on us inwardly. He gives us new hearts. He works on our thoughts. He works on our desires. He works on our emotions. He changes us from the inside out. He makes us, over time, more and more like Jesus himself. He produces the fruit of the Spirit in us. One commentator said, Pharisaical righteousness was skin deep. Christian righteousness is to be real. It is to be true heart conformity to the law of God. 
Our obedience to the law is not only to be merely external and ceremonial, but real and spiritual. Our understanding of it is not merely tradition and superficial. And so as the Spirit works in our lives, we become more and more righteous in our daily thought life, and so in our daily living. As the Spirit works in us, we become more and more obedient to the commands of God, not just on the outside, but internally. It's not just that we behave in a certain way more, it's, because we, it's that we want to behave in a certain way more. We become more like Christ. So our inward righteousness is lived out. It will begin to surpass the outward-only morality of the Pharisees. Our inward righteousness lived out will begin to surpass the outward-only morality of the Pharisees. As we continue to live in the power of the Spirit, we'll increasingly fulfill the demands that God's law makes on us. Not perfectly, we know that. We will not fulfill the law perfectly, but we will in concrete ways, increasingly, as we grow more like Jesus. And so where's the hope? Well, it's not in ourselves, but we do have a sure and certain hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're not saved by living righteously. We're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if we truly belong to God, our lives over time will give increasing evidence to this fact. We'll not live perfect lives. We will still sin. We'll still need to confess sin regularly. Sometimes it will feel like we're making two steps forward in growing more like Christ. Sometimes it will feel like we're taking two or three steps back. But over time, over the course of time, our lives will increasingly become like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can be assured of our membership of the kingdom of heaven. Once again, commentator says, if we treat the law lightly and encourage others to do so, we show that we are strangers to the new covenant in Christ. But if we love and seek to keep even the least of the Lord's commandments, and we encourage others to do so as well, that is a sure mark that we love Christ and belong to his kingdom. So in a sense, over the next few weeks, I hope that the next few Sunday evenings are painful for me and for you. Because in God's goodness, as the Spirit works in with the Word, these commandments Jesus is teaching will highlight to us how far, how far uh, short we fall of God's perfect standards. As these commands are taught to us and packed to us, it will reveal to us our need of Jesus' ongoing forgiveness. It will reveal to us how dependent we are upon the Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross. It will be revealed to us that we have no hope unless, by faith, the Father credits Christ's perfect righteousness to us as his people. But as we look at these commandments together, they will reveal to us the righteousness that the Lord really does require from his people as his spirit works in them. The next few weeks will reveal the increasing righteousness, the obedience, the Christ-likeness that the Lord is forming, that the Lord continues to form in us by his grace in the power of his spirit.
The glory of the gospel is that Christ died for us, he lived for us, he died and rose again for us. But the glory of the gospel also lies in the fact that he has undertaken to do a work in us by the Spirit to his glory, making us to be more like him so that our righteousness surpasses even the righteousness of the Pharisees. Let's pray together and then I'll hand back to Nathan. Father God, we do thank you this evening for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we seek your forgiveness for those times when we have sought to dust ourselves down, as it were, when we have sought to present ourselves as moral and respectable and and clean on the outside. Father, we know that your law applies not just to the outside, but to the inward man. And Father, we, we ask you to forgive us. We know that as sinners, our emotions, our desires, our, as well as our conduct falls far short of your glory. And we, we pray that, yes, you would forgive us, forgive us again and again and again, and we return to the cross for that, and we thank you for it. But, Father, we thank you that you have also undertaken to do a work in us, not simply, um, as it were, to save us from our sins, but to, to save us to greater Christ-likeness, and eventually that we might be sin-free, not in this world, but in the world to come. And so, Father, help us to understand these things, help us to be challenged in the right way, but also bring us great comfort, knowing that you are at work in our lives if we are truly yours. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.